Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number nine, an Old Testament survey from Abraham to modern Israel. Well, as we continue moving along in our survey, we have arrived at the era of Christ. So by modern calendars, we're at the cusp of when B.C. turns to A.D. Judaism is at war, internally and externally. It's about now that the term rabbi begins to denote some of the great religious leaders of Judaism. Now it's commonly said among Christians, the rabbi means teacher. It does not. Rabbi means great one or master. Indeed, rabbis were teachers. But they were much more than that. And it's important to understand where rabbis fit in the Jewish social and religious system. First and foremost, they were and they remain part of the synagogue system, not part of the temple system. And the synagogue system and the temple system in Yeshua's day were not only completely separate institutions, they were competitors. And when the next temple gets rebuilt, the rabbis probably will have no role in its operation, although I suspect that's going to be quite difficult for the rabbis to accept. It was the Levite priests who were and will be the authorities of the temple system, and this was ordained by the Lord in the Torah. Rabbis, as leaders of the synagogue system, were essentially laymen. They were not, and today are not, Levites. And they had no place or authority in any temple ritual such as sacrificing. Further, the synagogue system was a completely man-made system that had been created by the Jews while they were in exile in Babylon. There's no biblical authorization for an alternative system that, um, to the temple system. Nonetheless, that is what was created. Now, don't take this to mean I'm saying the synagogue's a bad thing or it shouldn't exist. It's the result of, a, of pragmatism. It's the result of circumstance. And as a result of their exile, the Jews dispersed all over the Asian continent and Europe and China and northern Africa. So having a place to meet together, to worship, to learn God's word, this was essential. However, there is a definite downside to the synagogue system. It is a man-made institution. It's also the bastion of the man-made system of the Jewish religion called Judaism. Thus, it kind of presents a slippery slope if it's not approached properly. I want to talk about that for a minute. Think about the term Judaism. Judaism. The word comes from the name of the tribe, Judah, who created it. Judah-ism. 
And the members of the tribe of Judah were called Jews. So Judaism means a system of religious observance and rules that pertains to the tribe of Judah. This is opposed to the religion of the Torah and of the Tanakh, which I give the label of Hebrewism in order to draw a contrast between the two. That is because the term Hebrew not only refers to all 12 tribes of Israel, not just to Judah, but it, is also, it also refers to the Torah-based system of the Bible as written in the Holy Scriptures. So let's be clear. Judaism's rules and regulations don't come from the biblical Torah except by extrapolation. They come rather from what is called halakha. Halakha is rabbinical law that was first formalized early in the 3rd century AD by a fellow called Judah Hanasi, also known as Judah the Prince. And the document he created is called the Mishnah. Today, the Mishnah is essentially incorporated into a later work called the Talmud, which is essentially commentary on the Mishnah. And it results in certain rulings and case studies. What comes then from the Talmud is the system of behaviors and rulings that forms modern Judaism and its religious structure called Halakha. Now before all this was formalized, the Holy Lands in Jesus' time had many synagogues and yeshivas, religious schools, where a certain rabbi would teach his students his own brand of, of Judaism. And naturally, just as with the various Christian church denominations, there was a fundamental commonality, but also deep divisions and disagreements among these rabbis about the finer points of the laws. This resulted in the formation of a handful of sects of Judaism around the time of Christ's birth. Now the four major denominations or sects of Judaism at that time were the Parshim, the Parshim, the Pharisees, the Tzedukim, the Sadducees, the Essens, and the newest sect, the Zealots. The Parshim Pharisees dominated the Jewish synagogue leadership and they were present in the high courts. The Sadducees were aristocrats. They were in control of the high priesthood and they too had members on the high court. Now these sects and the many subsects of each of the major ones were usually segregated by a particular rabbi's teachings and interpretations of the law or perhaps by nationality, even by trades and crafts. It was usual that the sects took on a political and social philosophy as their tenet for existing. Now the essence we know of primarily as the authors of the famous Dead Sea Scrolls of Qumran. Until the 1990s, 
it was believed that they were a relatively small sect of no more than about 4,000 individuals who formed a communal society in the desert wilderness known as Kirbat Qumran, sharing their homes and food and money with one another. And they sought isolation. However, recent archaeological evidence has come to light indicating that the Essens were far more numerous and widespread and diverse and they played a greater role in their time and on the emergence of Christianity than previously thought. It is now known that the Essens were formed after the Maccabean Rebellion of 167 B.C. The Hasmon family, the Hasmoneans, led by Judas the Maccabee, name we all know, had been ruling the land since that successful revolt against Syria and Rome. And while this family is generally looked upon by Judaism with great favor, the reality is that when they gained, regained control of the temple from their Syrian and Roman oppressors, they anointed a Hasmon family member as the high priest instead of reinstalling one of the descendants of the God-anointed priestly line of Sadok, one of the many Levite family lines. This new high priest, his name was Jonathan, <clears throat> then his successor, Simon, Shimon, took the further step of circumventing the Torah requirement that only Levites should be the numerous lesser temple priests. The now irrelevant and abandoned priestly line, high priestly line, of Zadok left the area of Jerusalem and they went to Damascus, Syria. Along with them went an ardent group of followers. Thus was born the sect of the Essens. Now one of the more exciting recent finds in the Holy Land is the place that Josephus refers to as the Essens Gate in the old city of Jerusalem. The gate was heretofore unknown except for mention in a handful of ancient documents. Now that it has been found exactly as mapped out by Josephus, it proves that the Essens had a substantial community large enough to have its own city gate within the walls of Jerusalem right up until the city's destruction in 70 AD. I've taken several people to that archaeological pit. It's a, quite an exciting place to see. Kind of tough to get to, but um, very interesting. Now evidence is supporting to support a hypothesis that <clears throat> John the Baptist was himself an Essen, probably more correctly, a member of a splinter group of the Essens called the Nazarenes. More startling is the growing agreement among biblical scholars that there were apparently several branches of the Essen sect, many of which accepted the deity of Yeshua. 
It is said of the Essenes that they refused to engage in commerce of all forms. This was a pre-Babylonian exile era Jewish tradition. They were pacifists. They did not engage in animal sacrifice. They were in essence the hippie dropout movement of that time. However, they were deeply religious and this drove their desire to be separate from the intense Hellenizing that was being pressured upon the Jewish culture. The subsequent perversion of Judaism that was occurring during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes in 175 BC and then followed by these high-handed ways of the Hasmoneans led to their existence, led to the existence of of the essence that can be traced right back to that same time. It also appears that the main body of essence who lived in Qumran, out by the Dead Sea, in general embraced celibacy and they rejected marriage and they were very careful students of the Torah. They formed a group that consisted of various levels of Jewish society ranging from the the least learned field peasants to the most learned scribes. Now interestingly, another mainline sect of Judaism was born from the aftermath of the Maccabean Rebellion. One of the Hasmonean, once the, rather the Hasmonean rulers and their families, um, who had been given, who had given their fellow countrymen back their freedom, once they began enjoying the advantages of their power, they increasingly accepted the pagan ways of Hellenism. And by the time of Christ, their descendants had become a class of aristocrats who self-servingly sold their influence to the highest bidder. They gave up the pure ways of Jehovah worship and the nationalistic idealism of their forefathers in favor of a watered-down Judaism that cared little for the common people, was devoid of spirituality, and it served their own ambitions. These were the Sadukim the Sadducees. Now the Zealots' origin can be traced to just a few years before Yeshua's birth. In contrast with the Essenes, this party represented the desire for a large-scale social change achieved by any means. They were the social-political radicals. They were the activists of that era. The zealots were credited with being the insiders and leaders of the many riots in Jerusalem. And they were openly speaking of rebellion against Rome. Fearless, volatile, many zealots carried daggers under their cloaks. And they often utilized them. These were notoriously dangerous men. One of Jesus' disciples, Simon the Zealot, bears the identity of his affiliation with this vocal, if not downright fanatical, party. Now, if it's imaginable, there were even more religious schools than there were synagogues in Jerusalem, each one performed and conducted by one of this growing population of rabbis. 
And just as Hebrewism had given way to Judaism up in Babylon, now, back in the Holy Land, Judaism had given way to Rabbinism. That is, the rabbis, their teachings and academies were where direction and authority for practicing the law now came from. They were in charge. It is not at all wayward to compare the position of rabbis at that time to the station of the academic elite that dominate today's uh, that, that dominate today's universities in Jesus's time for the faithful Jew higher learning consisted only of religious training and that primarily of the law and of tradition whatever the rabbi rather whatever the rabbi who owned and ran a particular school said was truth was accepted without hesitancy because he was the expert <clears throat> It was understood. Rabbis were the source of wisdom and truth. All else was ignorance. Now, although the high priesthood continued to hold the official Jewish religious power, the people's loyalty to them them was on the wane. The high priest's duties had been reduced primarily to officiating at temple festivals and and sacrifices. And he had become more of a figurehead than a real leader. Learnedness of the Torah was now the measure of your piousness. The most learned rabbis, therefore, considered the least learned peasants incapable of proper piousness, with Samaritans occupying the lowest point on the scale of piety and Galileans just a little more acceptable not much now of interest to our study are the three primary regions that the Holy Land was divided into although actually there were four the fourth being Perea that were considered as making up the totality of the Holy Land these districts were treated by Rome and by the Jewish religious authorities almost as separate nations. A Roman governor was assigned to each one. Most Jews were concentrated in either Judea or the Galilee. Samaria had many small Jewish villages that were loyal to the Jerusalem religious authority, but central Samaria which consisted of Shechem and Mount Gerizim, they pulled away. Mainstream Samaritans were not even considered real Jews by the Galileans and Judeans. So deep was their hatred of one another. Now, Galil, Galilee, was a region of commerce and industry. Nazareth, 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 was a blue-collar town in central Galil, Galilee. It was also a point of connection to the rest of the world as great caravan routes used Nazareth, Nazareth, as their meeting place. This was no sleepy, rustic backwoods village as often depicted in Christian movies about Christ. It was a center for Jewish temple life. Priests of Nazareth 
not only ministered to the local inhabitants, they were sufficiently trained and educated as to be permitted the honor of presiding from time to time at Herod's temple in Jerusalem. Galileans as a people were straightforward, they were passionate, they were pragmatic, and they lived far enough away from the rabbinically controlled world of Jerusalem to practice their Judaism with more freedom and and simplicity. Brides were chosen by their ability to bring all the elements necessary for a good, strong family together rather than by their ability to provide a rich dowry. Betrothal was pure. Weddings were basic. Now, Shomron, Samaria, presented a particular problem during Christ's era. Not only had its citizenry become completely Hellenized, so had the priesthood. It went so far that the Samaritans built their own temple in Shechem and set up a completely independent temple system of their own. This Samaritan temple system mixed the traditional Jewish ways with Greek philosophy and with Greek gods. And politically, the Samaritans broke loyalty with the Galileans and with the Judeans, and they sided with the Romans and with the Syrians. Now the enmity between the Samaritans and two other Israeli provinces, Yehuda, Judea, and Galil, the Galilee, was sufficient that Judeans would even avoid using the road that connected Judah to the Galilee because it ran through Samaria. Rather, they would take a much more circuitous route through Perea, which was a primarily Jewish population. It was the same route, same route, that Jesus took when he came to Jerusalem from Capernaum, Kepharnehum, usually avoiding Samaria altogether. Now, interestingly enough, despite the hatred between these factions, there was primarily a political and a religious dispute. They recognized their common Israeli brotherhood and the Samaritan Jews were never considered unclean or impure. Their food, clothing, animals, goods were all considered acceptable to the Galileans and the Judeans. Now, why do we go here? Go up through all this? It's because it's with this understanding of the social and the religious and the political conditions and evidence that we have to approach this outrageous concept to the typical Jewish mind of that day that the long hoped for Messiah would be born to common peasants residing in Nazareth of the Galilee living far away from the religious elite far away from the power center of Jewish religion, Jerusalem. The mother, Miriam, Mary. She was just a virgin country teenage girl. The father, Yosef, Joseph. He was a humble craftsman. These were the typical Jewish household. Surely the coming of the long-awaited Messiah would be announced in Yerushalayim of Judea, 
the holiest city at Herod's temple from the mouth of the high priest at some huge ceremony. The Savior, he'd have to be the son of a wealthy and respected royal family so he could be educated and raised and adored by those worthy of such a task. It's no small wonder that Yeshua of Nazareth up in the Galilee was rejected by the Jewish religious elite. Therefore, also most of the general population. Five months into the pregnancy of Miriam's, Mary's cousin, Elisheva, Elizabeth, in whose womb grew the babe who in future times would be known as Yochanan ben Zechariah, John the Baptist, the angel Gabriel appeared. And this theophany didn't occur in front of the golden altar at the temple, nor did the angel speak to a high priest. Rather, he addressed himself to this humble Jewish girl in her humble Jewish home. And she received the greatest honor imaginable. She's informed that the Lord God looks upon her as highly favored and reveals to her that she shall give birth as a virgin to the Mashiach, the Messiah, the appointed one. She was informed of the name the Most High had decided for the child, Yeshua, God saves, that He is the Son of God, that He shall institute a never-ending never-ending kingdom of God on a global scale. Staggering. Yet one can only imagine what went through the mind of Joseph when told all of this by his fiancée, who is now about three months pregnant. No matter what the level of trust between them might have been, Joseph must have had doubts and suspicions. It took a divine visit to Joseph in a dream to reassure him. And see, dreams or lack thereof had great significance in those times. A good dream was regarded as an indication of having favor with God. So the combination of Joseph's good dream, along with its incredible content, wiped any doubt from his mind. So rather than wait for the agreed-to time to marry Miriam, he did so immediately. Now, partly, I'm sure, to keep her from suffering embarrassment as she grew bigger and her condition became pretty obvious. Well, a few months later, about 5 B.C., by our current calendars, Miriam gave birth to the Savior of all mankind in a cave used as a barn in the town of Bethlehem, Bethlehem of Judea, the birthplace of King David. The Word became flesh. The heavens rejoiced, legions of angels sang praises to the God Most High. But the Jewish religious hierarchy had quite a different reaction to this. This was not going to be the Messiah, the Deliverer that the rabbis or the priests had expected. Now interestingly, the basis for their rejection of Yeshua as the Messiah appears not to have stemmed from any argument 
that the priests or the rabbis made against Yeshua's claim of fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament, for indeed there was no argument to be made. The problem lay in this mental picture that they had drawn for themselves of the purpose of the Messiah, which Jesus in no way fit. They had long ago made the Torah, God's word, subservient to the scholarly commentaries of the rabbis and the priests. And they had interlaced scriptural truth with man-made traditions. These were days of great restlessness in the Holy Land throughout all four provinces because the Jews were waiting for that appearance of their hope for a Savior that was going to rescue Israel from the oppressive hand of Rome. Their hope wasn't for one who would save all mankind from its awful destiny, which is permanent separation from God. It was rather for a redeemer of the glory of Israel itself, a return to Jewish self-rule. Their hope was most certainly not for a light to the Gentiles, but rather for a warrior king from the royal line of King David who was going to rid Israel of these non-Jewish heathens. Their hope wasn't for the ultimate and final sacrificial lamb that would atone for the world's sins and bring a new and right relationship between God and humanity because the Jews were confident. They were already right with God since they were the seed of Abraham. It was the pagans. It was the pagans and those Gentiles that had to be judged and punished and banished from the land at the leadership of this powerful and charismatic deliverer. That's what they expected. The rabbis and their followers had developed a purely pragmatic and nationalistic view of redemption and the one who would bring it about. And of course, the coming warrior savior would be in full agreement with the pronouncements and the authority of the religious leadership. It's no wonder then that the more learned and those in power, the priests and the rabbis and the scribes, those who had spent the mental time and energy contemplating and developed these sorts of ideas as to bring them to the point of general consensus, that they found Yeshua's pronouncements and his outspoken disdain for their rulings and laws not only objectionable but blasphemous and a real danger they felt to their personal authority. Yeshua was 30 years old when he was baptized by his cousin Yochanan ben Zechariah, John the Baptist, and immediately the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit descended upon him and he began teaching that the kingdom of God has come and crowds formed to hear him. See, his was a grassroots movement with an audience that was composed primarily of the working class Jews. Yeshua was openly critical of the Jewish religious hierarchy, even accusing them of being hypocrites, uh, although that was a name they commonly called one another during their heated debates. He publicly condemned their legalistic approach 
to practicing and administering the law of Moses, the Torah. And he accused them of distorting the true sense and meaning of the Torah and making it a burden rather than a blessing to the followers of the God of Israel. But he made it very clear that he personally obeyed and respected the Torah and that in no way was he advocating abolishing it nor should the people refrain from following it. In fact, he spent a great deal of his time explaining the Torah's intent and how he had come to make the Torah complete, to perfect it, to fill it full of meaning. In perhaps his seminal speech to the people of the Holy Land, he went to a high hill above the Sea of Galilee. There he made a speech that Christianity has dubbed the Sermon on the Mount to emphasize what his purpose was and was not, we read his recorded statement in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah of the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a ute or a stroke will pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened. So, whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and so teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He also made it abundantly clear he was deity. But all... But just as importantly, see, he didn't do anything that the Jews had come to expect of a Messiah. For most, he didn't lead a rebellion against the Romans. To the average Jewish citizen, this was de facto proof. He wasn't who he claimed to be. Yeshua put together a a rather motley crew of 12 followers he called Talmudim, Disciples. Three of them were fishermen. One was a tax collector. The most hated profession in the entire Holy Land. It is likely most of them had only a minimum Jewish education. And Yeshua, accompanied by his twelve ordinary men, made a pilgrimage from the Galilee, where he lived, to Jerusalem, as it was customary for every Jew to celebrate Pesach. Passover, the remembrance of the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. The holy city was swelled with Jewish visitors and served a great audience for him because he made this prediction about this coming destruction of the temple and of its priests. And he even created a disturbance in the outer courts of the temple when he angrily overturned some tables full of carefully stacked coins of these authorized money exchangers. This didn't sit very well with the local police because Jerusalem was always just one little sparker away from another of the many riots that just plagued them. Yeshua and his disciples then shared a special Galilean traditional Passover meal together. However, it wasn't the more well-known Passover meal when the lamb was eaten. 
See, this is because the slaughter of the lambs wouldn't even occur until later on in the day, the day of His crucifixion. Christians call Yeshua's final meal uh, with His disciples the Last Supper. And after His meal, Yeshua and His disciples all went up to the Mount of Olives where Yeshua was arrested by the temple guard. Now the temple guard was not Roman, although we're told that a few Roman troops assisted in Yeshua's arrest. Rather, you see, it was Jews who formed the temple police force. Levites, to be precise. Yeshua was held in the house of the high priest, as one might expect, since this was an action... This arrest was an action of the Jewish temple leadership. This wasn't about the Roman authorities. The Sadducees, who had arranged his betrayal and and, and his arrest using one of Christ's own inner group of twelve, Yehuda Ischariot Judas, delivered him to the Roman governor and accused him of inciting a riot. And the Jewish religious authorities wanted him dead. And they would have gleefully killed him themselves. But Rome had long ago stripped the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious court, of any right to execute capital punishment. Now reluctantly, the Romans obliged and they did the act for them. If executing another bothersome Jewish peasant was going to help keep the peace, why not do it? Well, the Roman governor of Jerusalem was... Pontius Pilate. And he ordered Yeshua to die on the death stake. He was to undergo the most gruesome and humiliating form of capital punishment. Crucifixion. The death warrant was carried out by some of that small contingent of Roman soldiers that were garrisoned in Jerusalem. Yeshua died on Passover. Well, on the third day, day one being the day he was executed, several women went to pay respects at his tomb and they found it empty. And word raced around the city that his body was missing. I mean, had it been stolen by some group trying to discredit Yeshua's claims? And just as problematic, had his body been stolen by yet another group that wanted to contrive a divine disappearance? Or indeed... Was he alive and resurrected and exactly who he said he was? Well, his 12 disciples and newest followers didn't know how to behave. They didn't know what to think about this. Most of them were dispirited and discouraged. I mean, had they tied all of their hopes and dreams to yet another false Messiah? One of the many that had already come and gone and proved to be simply idealistic men, some of whom just wanted fame and a following? Well, a few days later, after the Passover crowds had thinned out, small groups of Jews began meeting in their homes, trying to understand what had occurred here. And many believed that Yeshua was the Son of God, just as He bluntly said He was. And that He had been resurrected, just as He would predicted. This was a little bit easier to accept for those new believers that followed the Pharisees. See, because they believed in the possibility of bodily resurrection. But for those who followed 
the Sadducean teachings it was near impossible to accept because their belief system denied the possibility of bodily resurrection. The Essens, however, were fully prepared for the advent of the Messiah because they had long been preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Now the Zealots, well, they were just angry and cynical. They were disappointed that Jesus did not lead them in open warfare against the Romans. So they again began their wait and watch for this warrior king rebel leader they were hoping for. Believers from many of the small sects and subgroups accepted Yeshua as Savior, each of them in their own way. That is, their beliefs, generally speaking, became hybrids of their former doctrines and philosophies with Christ added to the mix. The Jewish religious authorities put out an edict. No one is to associate with these followers of Yeshua and this new messianic sect. But it made a carpenter's son of all people. Their God. Worshipping a man was seen as nothing less than idolatry. The punishment being excommunication or death. Well, the disciples ignored that order. They went about the work Yeshua assigned to them, telling the Jews about the good news. It's about 35 AD now. Within months after Christ's death, the outlawed Messianic movement began spreading. The members of one of the several Jewish Messianic sects called themselves the Way. And they would, many years later, have their identity Hellenized to reflect the Greek name Christos, Greek for Messiah. And in a little more time, when Gentiles began to make up more and more of the Messianic movement, these followers were called Christians. And the very first sect to embrace Yeshua's Messiahship was the Nazarenes, almost certainly an offshoot of the essence. And various Jewish leadership groups met regularly to, to discuss how to stamp out those sects. A few of them were not too concerned, others were vehement. A young Pharisee named Saul presided at an illegal execution encouraged by the Sanhedrin of a certain Messianic Jew named Stephen who had spoken of Yeshua as the Messiah, but he also spoke about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Stephen's killing sparked riots and the anger of the Roman governor because these unruly Jewish troublemakers were by law forbidden to carry out executions. Well, within three years, Pilate was removed from office by the Roman Senate after a particularly ugly riot up in Samaria. It appears the Romans had lost faith in his ability to control these unruly people. King Agrippa, Herod's grandson, came to power in just a few years. And to many Jewish historians, he oversaw the last golden age of Judaism in the Holy Lands. The non-Messianic Jews, oh, they loved him. He cared deeply for the people. 
He also ordered the execution of the Messianic Jew, James, brother of Jesus and leader of the believers in Jerusalem. Later, this new Herod ordered the imprisonment of Peter, which was a very popular decision. Thousands of Jews had come to belief in Yeshua. And they were now what we would today say are Messianic Jews, while as yet only a handful of Gentiles had accepted him. And these few Gentile believers, however, found themselves occupying a religious no-man's land. The Messianic Jews, known as the Way, were requiring these non-Jewish believers to convert to Judaism in order to worship Yeshua in their synagogues. And many resisted. However, as uncomfortable and ambiguous as this was, see, the real issue of the times was this growing animosity between the Jews and the pagan Hellenists. Now, the Romans, of course, sided with the Hellenists. Middle ground disappeared and it was replaced by extreme views on both sides. Roman rule had become intolerable for the Jews, and the Jews were a never-ending problem for the Romans. Well, the highly educated Pharisee, Shaul, Saul, whose Greek name was Paulus, and whom Christians commonly call Paul, became perhaps the most fervent and effective leader of this new Messianic Jewish sect. Paul, you see, was a rabbi. He was educated at the most prestigious school of Judaism in Jerusalem, the school of Gamaliel. Paul was not born in the Holy Land. He was a diaspora Jew. He was one of the millions of Jews born and raised outside of Judea, Samaria, and the Galilee. Tarsus of Cilicia, which was a Roman province, that was his home. But he came to Jerusalem because it was the power center of Jewish education and religious authority. Paul was a very ambitious young man. And pretty soon he ascended to a position on the lower Sanhedrin. And Shaul ingratiated himself to the Jewish, relig- uh, Jewish religious leadership by gaining this reputation as, as perhaps the fiercest hunter of heretics among which Jews who worship Christ was enemy number one. And while on his way one day to Damascus, Syria to arrest some suspected Yeshua sympathizers, he had this amazing direct encounter with the resurrected Messiah. And this resulted in a changed heart as well as temporary blindness. Afterward, Paul became a fearless and tireless planter of new believing congregations and as an evangelist of the good news, as well as a prolific writer on behalf of the risen Messiah. His letters and epistles dominate the New Testament and are perhaps the most studied passages in the entire Bible by Christians. In fact, Paul in later times became the greatest source for denominational doctrines that rules the church to this day. Now it's important to understand the nature of those so-called churches that Paul planted. The first several, almost all of those afterwards, were simply various Jewish synagogues already existing, which he was able to persuade to accept Yeshua as their Messiah. 
And they continued on in their Jewish liturgies and simply added Christ to the mix. And they continued as synagogues, not churches in the way we think of church. As more and more Gentiles came to believe, some accommodations were made by the Jewish religious leadership headed by Jesus' brother James, which allowed these new Gentile believers to worship alongside Jews and inside those synagogues without first becoming Jews by means of circumcision. Eventually, Gentiles outnumbered Jews. And the synagogues began taking on a different flavor. In time, Gentiles wanted to continue worshiping Christ, but they didn't want any Jewish influence. Big mistake. So, they built separate places of worship. This is the birth of the church era. And we'll continue next week with the spreading of the gospel among the Gentiles.